Before we begin, I wanted to share that I was honored to be a guest on Jim Harold's Crime Scene podcast. You may know Jim Harold from his long-running and popular podcasts, Campfire True Ghost Stories, and the Paranormal Podcast. His newest offering, Crime Scene, interviews the top true crime experts, authors, and podcasters. Some of the great guests on his show have included Tim and Lance from Missing Maura Murray, Laura Beale from Dr. Death, and now, little old me. I hope you'll give it a listen. Look for Jim Harold's Crime Scene wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I'm showing my gratitude to my incredible listeners by picking the cases from their suggestions. But the theme so far this month could also be called Unlikely Suspects. Last week, I told you about a murderer that began killing at the young age of 13. Although he was neighbors with the victims, his age and charming demeanor at first kept anyone from suspecting him of the brutal crimes. This time, I'll tell you about the case of a teenaged couple, both smart, accomplished, and with bright futures ahead of them, who conspired together to murder a young girl. Their part in this terrible crime was not discovered for almost a year, as they were considered good kids that no one would ever suspect of such a deed. I want to thank listener Casey Graham for suggesting this case, as it is one that I have been interested in since it took place in 1995. As a result of Casey reaching out to me to suggest it, I now get to share it with you. This is the story of Diane Zamora and David Graham, the Texas Cadet murder case. Diane Michelle Zamora and David Graham met in 1991 when they were both enrolled in a search and rescue training class for an Air Force auxiliary program in Fort Worth, Texas. They didn't begin dating until four years later, when they were high school seniors. From the beginning, Diane and David had a lot in common. Both were teens who first and foremost focused on their studies. While their high school peers were typically hanging out with friends or attending parties, Diane and David were home studying. David's goal was to become a fighter pilot. Diane had an even loftier goal of becoming an astronaut. While attending the Civil Air Patrol program together, they discovered their similar goals. Diane had dated a boy during her sophomore year, but for the most part, she felt that the boys her age were too immature. David was different, she thought. Like her, he was a good student who excelled in math and science. And also like her, he was an athlete. Both ran cross-country for their high schools, David for Mansfield High School and Diane for Crowley High. He was polite and serious and addressed his elders as sir and ma'am. She was a bit of a wallflower who didn't socialize very often. By their senior year in the fall of 1995, when they were dating, the couple also served in leadership for the Civil Air Patrol. David was in the top position as cadet colonel in the youth division, and Diane was the CAP's wing secretary. Their dates often consisted of David coming over to Diane's house in his combat fatigues, where they spent the evening together in her living room doing homework. When they weren't at school or track practice, David and Diane were inseparable. Like many teens in love, they spoke on the phone for hours, making plans for their future. Both were intent on attending the Air Force Academy, and they had a good shot at acceptance. Diane was a National Honor Society member, 
sat on the student council, and played the flute in the school's marching band. David was a National Merit Commended student and was a member of his high school's ROTC, or Reserve Officer Training Corps. When they were together, it was obvious that Diane was proud to be with David, beaming as they walked with their arms around each other. Friends and family members said David was protective of Diane and perhaps a little possessive. Whenever they were together, he always had one hand on her, around her shoulder or her waist, with a finger placed into her belt loop, tethering them together. Still, their friends thought they made a cute couple. David, tall and fair, with his military-style close-cropped blonde hair, and Diane, dark-haired and petite. She was a natural dark-eyed beauty, who had never been one to need or wear much makeup. In contrast, there was another girl who attended Mansfield High School with David and also ran for the cross-country team. Adrienne Jones, known as AJ, was a real knockout according to her classmates. Adrienne was tall and blonde with hazel eyes. One boy described her as, not just good-looking, but I mean good-looking. She was outgoing and flirtatious and remembered for always having a smile on her face. She liked to socialize and date and had gotten into some typical teenage trouble for sneaking out of the house to go see friends. In response, her father, Bill, had nailed her bedroom window shut. But Adrian was also a good student, taking advanced honor classes in school and playing on her school soccer team. When she'd been injured and couldn't finish the season, she decided to join the girls' cross-country team to get back into shape. She was a good runner and helped the team qualify for the regional meet in Lubbock. David came to know A.J. better as they ran track together. Along with their team, they both attended the meet in Lubbock in early November 1995. David even gave A.J. a ride home afterwards. Meanwhile, a month after Diane and David began dating, they announced their engagement to their families. They planned to be wed in the year 2000, right after they graduated from their military academies. David had applied and been accepted to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Diane had wanted to join him there, but had missed the deadline to apply. Instead, she applied to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. She was accepted. Her plan was to transfer her commission from the Navy to the Air Force after graduation so that she could be stationed with David. Diane's mother and father felt that her relationship with David was going a bit too fast. They seemed to almost have an obsession with each other and rarely spent time with other friends or even family members. Even when the family attended church together, David would tag along and also shared many dinners with them. Diane, it seemed, couldn't bear to have her boyfriend out of her sight. David was the youngest of four children who were being raised by their father in Mansfield. Jerry Graham and David's mother Janice had divorced and she'd moved to Houston. Jerry had roots in Mansfield as a former elementary school principal there. His children remained with him and continued living in the neighborhood where they'd been raised. Diane was the eldest child of Carlos and Gloria Zamora. Her parents were devout Christians who raised their children in the church. They were pleased that their daughter was so studious and intent on attending college. She had never been in trouble in any way and even dumped her previous boyfriend when she felt he wanted the relationship to be more physical. She told her mother that she was determined to remain a virgin until marriage. Then she met David, and the Zamoras saw a change in their daughter. She still put the same energy into her schoolwork, but now extended an equal amount of time and energy on her new boyfriend. 
While the Zamoras didn't dislike David, their devotion to each other became a bit worrying. Still, they could see that David Graham wasn't the typical teenage boy with just one thing on his mind. No, he really did seem to love Diane. When she couldn't afford a pricey pair of combat boots needed for her program, David bought them for her. When she got into a wreck driving David's truck and injured her hand, not only was he not angry with her, he stayed with her at the hospital every night after she had surgery to repair the damage to her hand. I don't think Diane ever had that kind of attention, a relative told reporter Scott Hollinsworth of the Texas Monthly. Soon after their announced engagement, Diane and David physically consummated their relationship. One relative said that Diane was torn about her decision to have sex before marriage. She loved David and wanted to solidify their bond by giving her virginity to him, but her religious values and personal beliefs told her she should have waited until they were married. She felt guilty about it, and this made her even more committed to her relationship with David. If I can't be Mrs. David Graham, she told a relative, then I will die as Miss Diane Zamora. It was around this time that Diane began having long, meaningful conversations with David. They had the perfect relationship, she told him. She believed their bond was much deeper and more serious than most people they knew. She used the word pure to describe their relationship. David, it seems, agreed with her. He was in love with Diane and wanted to please her, but he was also in the throes of his first teenage relationship when everything seems more intense, more important, and all-consuming. Then on the morning of December 4th, a discovery was made in a field in Grand Prairie, Texas, that rocked the town of Mansfield and Mansfield High School. Popular 16-year-old student Adrian Jones was found dead, beaten and shot, and rumors about who was responsible began to swirl. A farmer went out to his mailbox, which was located alongside a country road in Grand Prairie, Texas, on the morning of December 4, 1995. Just on the other side of a barbed wire fence, he saw the body of a woman lying on the ground. She was wearing a pair of running shorts, socks, and a sweatshirt. Her face and head were covered in blood, and there was no sign of life. He ran to a phone to call for help. The police arrived, and the area was sealed off after it was soon determined that the young woman was deceased. Under her sweatshirt was a T-shirt that read, UIL Region 1 Cross Country Regionals 1995. She wasn't wearing shoes, and none were found in the area. She had cuts and scratches to her arms and hands. The nearby barbed wire fence gave up a clue as to how they'd occurred. Clumps of long blonde hair clung to the wires. It appeared that the victim had attempted to climb through the wires to escape her attacker before she'd been overcome. She also had a large injury to her head. Her skull on one side had been crushed in, and she'd bled profusely from the injury. But two bullet holes were also found, one to her forehead and one in her cheek. The blunt force trauma she'd suffered and the two closely fired bullets to her face seemed personal. Detectives believed if they could find out the victim's identity, they may be able to quickly determine a suspect. Within a few hours, they were able to match the description of the dead woman to a missing persons report from Mansfield, located 19 miles away. On the morning of Monday, December 4th, Adrian Jones's younger brother informed his mother, Linda, 
that his sister was not in her room. At first, Linda thought her daughter may have gotten up early to go for a run. Later, when she found AJ's running shoes still in her room, Linda called her husband Bill to tell him their daughter was missing. She also called the school, who said AJ had been marked absent from her morning classes. Linda then called the police to file a missing persons report. Not long afterwards, the Joneses received a visit from homicide detectives, telling them that they believed their daughter Adrienne was the young woman found dead in Grand Prairie. They wouldn't believe that it could be true. That was until Bill Jones went to the morgue to identify his daughter's body. Linda Jones had seen her daughter last at 10.45 p.m. She had been getting her clothes ready for the next school day. Linda told her to hurry up and get to bed, and then they'd said goodnight. But Linda remembered that earlier that evening, she had allowed Adrian to take a phone call after her normal 9 p.m. cutoff time. AJ's boyfriend, Tracy Smith, had been out of town with his parents that weekend, and his first opportunity to call her was at 10.30 p.m. Linda told AJ she could take the call, but to make it a short one. A few minutes into the call, Linda heard AJ tell Tracy to hold on, because someone was calling in on the other line. After just a brief minute or so, AJ clicked the line back and began speaking to Tracy once again. Once she was off the phone, Linda asked who had called. She answered, Oh, that was David from Cross Country, and he's upset about something. Linda reported this to investigators, but couldn't tell them David's last name. She had no recollection of A.J. mentioning him before. Later, she even inquired to the cross-country coach about who David was. The coach told her it must be David Graham. When Linda said David had called A.J. the night she'd gone missing, the coach was surprised. She hadn't known that David and Adrian were even friends. When investigators began questioning A.J.'s friends, they didn't contact David right away. He wasn't listed in her address book like most of her friends were. They did question David Graham later, but he said he hadn't been the one to call AJ that night and hadn't seen her outside of school. Detectives ruled him out as a suspect. Investigators were focused on AJ's boyfriend, Tracy Smith. Tracy and Adrian hadn't been dating that long. Adrian's parents were suspicious of Smith. They didn't know him well and thought he acted oddly after her murder. He'd never tried to contact them afterwards, and to the Joneses, it seemed that he'd avoided the entire situation. Of course, he was a teenage boy whose new girlfriend had just been found murdered. What do you say to her parents, who you barely knew? Who knows how anyone would react in a similar situation, especially someone so young and inexperienced? Tracy was given a polygraph test and passed, but he did give the investigators one lead to go on. While he'd been talking to Adrian on the phone that night, he told them that she'd received another call, and he'd asked her who it was. She told him that it was someone named Brian, not David. She said that Brian called to tell her he was depressed and wanted to meet her to talk about it that night. Investigators now zeroed in on a boy named Brian McMillan. Adrian had worked at a Subway sandwich shop, and Brian worked nearby. He'd had a crush on her, according to AJ's friends. They also told detectives that he had stopped by her work so often that she had taken a hiding in the back of the store whenever she'd see him coming. Detectives found out that Brian had been diagnosed with depression, which fit the story they'd heard from Tracy about the phone call. 
They picked him up, and when they first questioned him, he lied and said he didn't know Adrian Jones. Then when caught in a lie, he admitted that he did know her, but said he'd been intoxicated the night of December 3rd and couldn't remember if he called her or not. He also couldn't remember if he'd visited her or not. He'd been upset, he said, because all of his friends had girlfriends, and he didn't, so he'd gotten drunk. To investigators, this seemed like a likely motivation, why he may have lured Adrian out somewhere to discuss his problems, and when she rejected him again, may have struck out in anger and killed her. They issued a warrant for his arrest. A SWAT team was sent to his house to make the arrest on December 15th. For three weeks while in custody, Brian McMillan asked to be administered a polygraph test. His father told investigators that Brian had been home that entire evening. His friends vouched for him, saying he was incapable of the type of violence inflicted on Adrian Jones. He spent the Christmas season in jail until he was finally given a polygraph test after the first of the year. He passed with flying colors. No evidence was found in his truck or home that he'd been involved and he was finally released. Later, he would sue and receive a settlement from the city for the way he'd been treated while under suspicion by police. Now the trail went cold, and it seemed that Adrian's killer might never be caught. But I want to rewind a bit and take you back to the night of December 3rd, the night Adrian left her house for the last time. Not long after midnight, AJ's younger brother heard the sound of a vehicle outside of his house. He looked out to see a dark-colored vehicle driving away. He wasn't sure, but he thought his sister might have slipped out to go hang out with friends. She'd done so in the past and had gotten grounded for it, but sometimes still did it. She always returned a few hours later, well before the sun came up. So he was surprised when she was not in her room in the morning. Also very early that morning, a young man by the name of John Green heard a tapping at his window at his home in Burleson. He looked out to see his good friend, David Graham, and his girlfriend, Diane Zamora, standing outside. They looked affright, shaken, scared, and even more alarming. Their clothes were smeared with blood. Green thought they might have been in an accident and started to ask what had happened when David begged him not to ask any questions. They entered his home, cleaned up, and Green gave David a pair of his shorts to change into. David and Diane were upset, Green recalled. They'd laid on his living room floor in front of the fire and held one another. In the morning, they were gone. Green never reported this to anyone. I'll take you back a little further in the story. A couple of days before the middle-of-the-night visit to John Green's house, David Graham had made a confession to his fiancée, Diane Zamora. A month earlier, after attending the track meet in Lubbock, he'd driven Adrian Jones home. On the way back, he told Diane, she had come on to him and urged him to pull the car over to a secluded spot. He'd done so, parking behind an empty elementary school. There in the car, he told Diane, they'd had sex. Diane had become enraged. She cried and screamed and became hysterical, at one point banging her head against the floor in anguish. David tried to calm her down, telling her that he loved only her and would do anything to prove it to her. Diane began to scream, Kill her! Kill her! They decided that Adrian Jones had spoiled their perfect love, and the only way to have their love be pure again was to get rid of the person who'd ruined it. 
On the night of December 3rd, David called Adrian and said he was depressed over a fight he'd had with his girlfriend. Would she agree to meet him to talk about it? Adrian said she could meet him later. He offered to come and pick her up. I imagine that AJ didn't believe she'd be gone long. She was dressed casually, in a pair of shorts and a sweatshirt. She wasn't even wearing shoes, just socks. Perhaps she thought they would just sit in David's car for a while and talk. It seems unlikely she was thinking of hooking up with him that night. Friends and family said that AJ always spent hours getting dressed and doing her makeup and hair, always wanting to look her best. She had not even changed her clothes before meeting David. Add that to the fact that she had a new boyfriend, who she seemed happy with, and it seems unlikely that she was romantically interested in David. David and Diane took Diane's parents' car, a green Mazda protégé, to Adrian's house. David had brought along a 9mm handgun. Diane was hiding in the trunk of the car. AJ hopped into the car's passenger seat, and David drove them outside of town. Once they reached an isolated road, Diane slid herself through the opening from the trunk to the back seat, surprising Adrian. The plan they decided on was for David to kill Adrian by snapping her neck. They would then drop her body into a nearby lake. The sequence of events that follows is somewhat murky, but David discovered that killing someone by breaking their neck wasn't as foolproof as he'd believed. When he was unable to kill Adrian this way, a struggle ensued. Diane, it's believed, picked up a hand weight from the floor of the back seat and bashed Adrian over the head. She continued to struggle, so David struck at her with the butt of the gun. Somehow, with her devastating injuries, Adrian was still able to jump out of the car and began to run into the field to escape her attackers. There would also be various versions of the following events told by Diane and David, but it's believed David began to panic and wanted to leave. Diane told him that they couldn't leave the girl alive to rat on them. They decided they had to finish the job. David then jumped out of the car and followed Adrian. She either fell or collapsed, and he shot her twice in the head. They left her body in the field and drove to Burleson to John Green's house. They would both later say that right after the murder, the first thing they said to each other was, I love you. Then Diane said, We shouldn't have done that, David. It appeared that David and Diane had gotten away with murdering Adrian Jones. They were on nobody's radar, and life continued for the couple. However, Diane's cousin would later say that she seemed even more obsessed with David as the months went on. If she called him and he didn't answer right away, she'd want her father to drive her over to make sure something terrible hadn't happened to her boyfriend. David spent many nights at Diane's house, and when her parents would remark how late it was, and tell her to send her boyfriend home, he would dawdle for hours, not wanting to leave. Even David's father would call looking for him, demanding for him to get home. Life was still working out according to plan for the young couple. That spring, they both received acceptance letters to their preferred military academies. David prepared to go to Colorado Springs and Diane to Annapolis. They attended special ceremonies at their high schools to celebrate these achievements. In May, they both walked in their high school commencement ceremonies, graduating with honors. Diane was now wearing David's engagement ring, and although they would be thousands of miles apart, they still planned to marry in four years. Neither was afraid they would drift apart. 
they had a terrible secret binding them together, after all. That summer, Diane and David began boot camp in the first leg of their journeys towards distinguished military careers. While the training he was put through was grueling and exhausting, David excelled at the Air Force Academy. He'd long dreamed of attending the Academy and had built his young life around discipline and hard work. He was now enjoying the military lifestyle, and the regiment required of him to become a member of an elite group of officers. Diane, on the other hand, was working just as hard at Annapolis, but finding the routine tough. She missed David terribly and was lonely. She'd never excelled socially and didn't have many close girlfriends. She'd spent most of her time with her family and extended family, parents, siblings, and cousins. She was quiet and often kept to herself, but found she had no one to talk to. She began to unburden herself to her fellow plebes or other freshmen in the academy. One person she spent time talking to was a fellow plebe and her squad leader, Jay Guild. Guild would later say that Diane spoke nonstop about her fiancé, David. However, she often shared how she didn't trust him being so far away from her. She was sure he was cheating on her, and when he didn't answer her emails right away, she would become distraught. She'd become angry and swear revenge on him, once deciding not to email him for several days. It was at this time that she told Guild she was thinking of breaking up with David and suggested that they begin dating each other instead. Guild, although he liked Diane, could see that she was too wrapped up in her relationship with David to take her seriously. He thought it was an obvious ploy to make David jealous, and he didn't want any part of it. Diane must have mentioned Guild to David to make him jealous, because David retaliated by sending threatening emails to Guild. He even tried to report the squad leader to naval officials at Annapolis for sexually harassing Diane. Jay Guild at some point asked Diane if David had ever cheated on her, and she admitted that he had. Guild wanted to know how she had resolved this betrayal, knowing how possessive and jealous they both were. She told Guild that she'd asked David to kill the other girl. She then went on to detail that she had been present when the girl was killed, but had not participated. She seemed pleased that David loved her so much he'd kill for her, Guild later reported. He didn't want to believe her, and thought it was just another ploy for attention by Diane. He didn't mention this conversation to anyone. Later that summer, Diane was having a late-night conversation with her two academy roommates when she began talking about her fiancé, David. The girls commented that the couple must really love one another to stay so devoted to each other from so far away. Diane commented that they would do anything for one another. Even kill for one another, one of the girls joked. Oh yes, we have, Diane answered, and began to tell them the story about a girl back home that David had cheated with and in order not to lose Diane, agreed to murder. The girls weren't sure what to believe, but according to the Academy's strict honor code, which compelled a cadet to immediately report any violations of rules or law-breaking, they decided to share Diane's story with a Navy chaplain the next day. He, in turn, contacted a Navy attorney at the Academy, who decided to look into Diane's story. He called several police departments in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, where Diane was from, to find out if they had an unsolved case of a murdered teenage girl. On August 29th, he was told by the Grand Prairie Police that they did. A 16-year-old girl named Adrian Jones had been found murdered in December of the previous year. 
detectives flew to Annapolis to question Diane Zamora. When she was questioned by detectives and Navy personnel, Diane told them that she'd made up the story that she'd told her roommates. She was just trying to act tough in front of them, she said. There was no truth to it. With little else to go on, detectives returned to Texas, where they would continue to do some digging into Diane's story. But Navy officials told Diane they were suspending her pending the conclusion of the investigation. The fact that she had lied to her roommates alone put her in violation of their strict honor code and could get her bounced from the academy altogether. They gave her a plane ticket to return home. But instead of flying directly home, she made a stopover in Colorado Springs to see David. It's unknown what was said between them, but when investigators arrived to question him soon afterwards, he told them that Diane's story about a murder was completely false, and he couldn't understand why she would say such a thing. The detectives continued to chip away at David. They had already spoken to John Green in Burleson and heard the story about the early morning visit by him and Diane and the bloody clothing. This visit, they knew, coincided with the night Adrian Jones had gone missing. David still continued to deny knowing anything. After several hours of being questioned by detectives without asking for an attorney, he agreed to take a polygraph test. He failed. David Graham finally cracked. Detectives told him that they had enough evidence to try him for murder and urged him to come clean and tell them what had happened. He sat down and typed out a four-page confession. At times, in his telling of the events of December 3rd, December 4th, 1995, it seemed as if Graham believed he was penning a romance novel. About his sexual encounter with Adrian, he wrote that this was, quote, completely against the moral background I have grown to appreciate. There were sexual activities short-lived and hardly appreciated. I did willingly concede to the girl in these actions, but I knew they were wrong. Never before had I participated in anything so meaningless and painful. Painful because I was letting down the one person I had sworn to be faithful to, end quote. About his betrayal, he writes, I was always being told by Diane that our relationship was perfect and pure. The love we shared would never be broken. No one would ever come between us. No one, that is, except the one girl that had stolen from us our purity. Describing Diane's reaction after he confessed his infidelity, David writes, For at least an hour, she screamed sobs that I wouldn't have thought possible. It wasn't just jealousy. For Diane, she had been betrayed, deceived, and forgotten. When this precious relationship we had was damaged by my thoughtless actions, the only thing that could satisfy her womanly vengeance was the life of the one that had, for an instant, taken her place. He then goes on to offer a theory as to why Diane became so distraught over his betrayal. Diane's father, he said, had often cheated on her mother, and for David to treat her the same way was unforgivable to her. Afraid of losing her forever, he offered to do whatever she asked to put things right between them. When Diane demanded that he kill her rival, he agreed, explaining, Diane's beautiful eyes have always played the strings of my heart effortlessly. I couldn't imagine my life without her. Not for a second did I want to lose her. I didn't have any harsh feelings for Adrian, but no one could stand between me and Diane. He then describes luring Adrian out to the car and driving her near the lake. He was unable to break her neck as planned. Diane then struck her on the back of the head with the weight while he held her down. After Adrian ran off, 
David chased after her, and she collapsed on the ground. He said he was tempted to leave her there, but decided he couldn't risk having her live to identify them. I just pointed and shot, he concludes. Armed with David Graham's confession, Grand Prairie police charged him with murder. Two days later, Diane was picked up by police at her grandparents' home in Fort Worth. She was stoic as she was taken away. Detectives had retrieved the gun and dumbbells from the Graham's attic, where he had admitted to hiding them. Now they confronted Diane with her boyfriend's confession and the murder weapons. She now also confessed to the murder of Adrian Jones. In her confession, Diane provided a few more details about their relationship. She first brought up the night of November 4th, the day he had returned from the track meet in Lubbock. She said he looked terrible, scared. She knew something was wrong, but didn't know what. She next mentioned that a month later, she was, quote, questioning him about his past relationships because he always told me that I was his first real girlfriend, unquote. From her statement, we can assume that her questioning of him about other girls was a common occurrence. Why would he, quote, always have to tell her that she was his first real girlfriend otherwise? She then goes on to say that, quote, I will never forget him mentioning the name Adrian because that name kind of stuck in my head. She goes on to say that, for some reason, I felt like I needed to ask about Adrian, unquote. Apparently, she did this several times because she was suspicious of David. She said that on a different day, they had fought because David wanted her to study and she didn't want to. And while arguing, he admitted that he had something to confess. You haven't been the only girl in my life, he'd said. He told her he'd had sex with someone else. She began to scream and cry and question him, and this went on for some time, until she became angry enough to try and hit him with an object, a brass rod. She continued to scream at him, and began banging her head against the ground and the walls. I didn't want to live with what he had said to me, she wrote in her confession. The one thing I prized more than everything else was taken away. I screamed at him, kill her, kill her. He was just so scared that he wasn't about to say no to me. I was still banging my head against the floor. All David wanted to do was make everything better. It seemed like agreeing to do that was the only thing that calmed me down. David promised he would do that, and David has never broken a promise to me before. They quickly formulated a plan wherein David would lure Adrian to a remote location near Joe Pool Lake. He would snap her neck, and they would sink her body into the lake. However, they must have realized that might not work, because they also decided to bring along a 9mm pistol. David collected guns and had several firearms. In Diane's mind, there was no alternative but to kill her rival. It would prove that David loved her and would ease her mind that he would not be tempted by this particular female again. It would also bond them together in this shared, deadly secret. It's apparent that Diane was the catalyst for the unfolding of this tragedy, and that David was a willing partner. Later, it would emerge that David might not have had sex with Adrian. He would later recant that it had happened, but would say that he lied about it to Diane because she believed it to be true. Once he had said it, the only way to appease her was to agree to the murder plot. Some have also theorized that David told Diane he had slept with Adrian just to make her jealous. After he told her he lied about it, she wouldn't believe him. So he ended up agreeing to the plan so she would forgive him. 
a witness at David's trial would testify that she, not David, had given Adrian a ride home from the Lubbock track meet, so his story about a sexual encounter with her on the drive home would have been impossible. Diane hid in the trunk that night on the way to Adrian's house. She believed that Adrian was beating up for a sexual encounter with David. She was furious as she thought about this while lying in wait. When the time came to reveal herself, Diane popped through the opening from the trunk to the back seat. When she saw me, Diane recalled, she kind of freaked out. She said David held Adrian down and told her they just wanted to talk to her. Diane asked her about having sex with her boyfriend. She claimed that Adrian answered that, quote, she didn't enjoy it because there was too much guilt, unquote. This seems a bit far-fetched. Think about how you'd react if some girl suddenly appeared in the backseat of a car that you were riding in and began accusing you of having sex with her boyfriend. You might say, who the hell are you? None of your business, or buzz off. But it's unlikely you'd say you, quote, didn't enjoy it and felt guilty. The other odd thing about this statement is that it is almost exactly, word for word, what David said he'd told Diane about the encounter when he'd confessed to cheating on her. And one other point about feeling guilty. When interviewed after the story broke, several Mansfield High School students said they didn't even know David had a girlfriend. Diane attended a different high school, and she didn't hang out socially with anyone from Mansfield. Almost no one knew her at Mansfield or even knew of her. It's possible Adrian didn't either. When David called her to lure her out of her house, he supposedly said he was depressed over a breakup or problems with a girlfriend but she may not have ever heard Diane's name before that night. Diane said seeing Adrian made her angry all over again, and she became hysterical and screamed at David to, just do it, just do it. She'd felt he was starting to back out of the plan. He began to try and hold Adrian down, but realized it was a lot harder to break someone's neck than he thought. Diane then grabbed one of the heavy hand weights from the back seat and tried to hit Adrian over the head several times finally striking her at least once. Adrian was still fighting David off when he turned for a moment and she slipped out of the window and ran towards the field. He ran after her with the gun, but said she'd collapsed in the field before he reached her. He returned to the car and said she's dead. Diane asked him, are you sure? She told David to shoot her because she, quote, probably wasn't dead. He wanted to take off, Diane admitted, but he went back to where she was because I told him to. He stood over Adrian and shot her twice in the head. They then drove off, stopping at John Green's house in Burleson to clean up. The next day, Diane cleaned the blood out of her car while David vomited in her bathroom. He refused to ride in the car again for months, feeling sick to his stomach whenever he got near it. They both went to school the next day and acted like nothing had happened. David attended Adrian's memorial. In September 1996, Diane Zamora and David Graham were charged with capital murder in the death of Adrian Jones. Kidnapping charges were added, upgrading the charge from murder to capital murder, which would give the state the option of seeking the death penalty. However, A.J.'s family requested that the state only ask for life in prison for their daughter's murderers. They mercifully explained that they didn't want to add the deaths of more young people to what was already a terrible loss. 
the state agreed not to seek the death penalty. While the couple was held in separate units of the Tarrant County Jail awaiting trial, they continued to send each other love letters, professing their undying devotion. However, after the state decided to try the pair separately, their sentiments began to change. Before the trials could even begin, an NBC television movie was scheduled to be aired about the case, titled Love's Deadly Triangle, The Texas Cadet Murder. Many criticized the network for airing the movie before the trials had even been held. It was decided that it would not be aired by NBC's Dallas-Fort Worth area affiliates until after the conclusion of the trials. In February 1998, Diane Zamora's trial finally began. Her defense, naturally, tried to keep her confession out of court, claiming that it had been coerced and that Diane didn't understand her rights before she'd agreed to give her statement. She said she'd been promised she could visit David if she corroborated his version of events. The judge would ultimately allow the confession to be read in court. It seems by the time of the trial, Diane's feeling for her one true love had turned. She would now blame David Graham for the murder, testifying that she didn't know that he'd planned to kill Adrian. She said she'd only wanted to meet her rival. She also told the court that David Graham was an abusive and controlling boyfriend who she was afraid of. Her defense claimed that she had not participated at all in Adrian's murder. But the prosecution had several witnesses who testified that Diane told them about the pact she and David had made, all in the name of true love, to kill her rival. Her two Annapolis roommates told how she had seemed pleased that her boyfriend would kill for her and boasted that he did so on her command because he didn't want to lose her. Jay Guild, who had been asked to resign after the naval authorities found out he hadn't reported Diane's confession, also testified for the prosecution at trial about Diane's admission of guilt. It was also discovered that Diane had a habit of documenting everything in writing in her planner. She'd made an entry on her calendar on December 4th that read, Adrian, 1.38 a.m., the approximate time period that the medical examiner had determined Adrian Jones had been killed. But the biggest blow to her defense was Diane herself. She was put on the stand to testify in her own defense. The entire trial was being televised on national TV, and the public as well as the jurors felt that she came off as cold, calculating, manipulative, and cocky. She became emotional while describing the murder, choking over her words, but the jury thought it seemed faked. She didn't shed a tear, they later said, and her emotions seemed rehearsed. After a week-long trial, the jury began deliberations. They returned with a verdict of guilty of capital murder. She received a mandatory life sentence. She would only be eligible to seek parole after serving a minimum of 40 years. After David heard how his fiancée threw him under the bus at her trial, he broke off their engagement. Now he said he'd only confess to try and help Diane. His defense was now that he wasn't even present at Adrienne's murder. Diane had acted alone and only told him what she'd done after the fact. He also insisted that his confession was coerced. The investigators, he said, told him that Diane would receive the death penalty and to save her, he'd said he was responsible. He'd hidden the murder weapon found in his attic to help cover for Diane. However, David had no alibi for the time of the murder, and both his and Diane's confessions, which matched so closely, were allowed in as evidence. 
The defense even called Diane to the stand in an attempt to help their client. But out of the presence of the jury, she refused to speak, invoking her Fifth Amendment rights. The defense rested without calling any witnesses. David Graham was also found guilty of capital murder and sentenced to life in prison. He would also not be eligible to seek parole until he reached the age of 58. After he was sent to prison, he gave an interview in which he stated that he'd never had sex with Adrian Jones. They were just casual acquaintances and never saw or spoke to each other outside of school or track events. He insisted that his only crime was in helping Diane cover up the murder. But David became a born-again Christian while behind bars, and in 2002, he admitted his part in the murder. He said that his motivation was to prove his ultimate devotion to a jealous girlfriend. He is now housed at Texas Department of Criminal Justice's All Red Unit, located in North Central Texas. He has taken courses through Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary's inmate program to become a pastor. Diane Zamora continues to assert that she had no responsibility for Adrian Jones's murder and puts the blame squarely on David Graham. She said that her former fiancé implicated her in the murder after the fact because she'd wanted to break up with him, and it was his attempt to, quote, tie her to him. In 2003, Diane Zamora married another inmate who she'd begun writing to in prison. Stephen Mora was also incarcerated in Texas, serving his sentence for burglary, auto theft, and threatening a witness. Diane's mother and a friend of Mora's stood in for the couple on their wedding day. It was the first proxy wedding to be held in the county. Wait, if she hyphenated her name, she would be Diane Zamora Mora. By 2008, the couple had divorced. In 2007, Diane Zamora appeared in an interview with Dateline. As part of the episode, she agreed to undergo a polygraph examination to prove to the public that she had not participated in the murder plot. As the polygraph examiner was conducting the test, he had to repeatedly ask her to stop her exaggerated breathing, a technique used as a countermeasure to throw off polygraph test results. Even so, the examiner concluded that Zamora was being deceptive when answering the question about whether she had intended to kill Adrian Jones. Two other polygraph examiners determined that the results were inconclusive due to Zamora's countermeasures. She explained to Stone Phillips of Dateline that she was nervous about the test and this had caused her to hyperventilate. Phillips, however, pointed out to the audience that Diane had been given all the questions in advance and had even reviewed them with the examiner before the test began. All of Diane Zamora's appeals have been exhausted. In 2017, she filed a complaint with the court after she was transferred from her segregated unit at Gatesville to the general prison population in the hobby unit located in central Texas. She claimed that she had become a target for threats and assaults from other prisoners due to the high-profile nature of her case. The court's response was that there was no evidence to show that having a high-profile case entitles a prisoner to safekeeping. The judge also deemed that her claims of assaults by inmates were, quote, far from reliable. Zamora's safekeeping cell at Gatesville was air-conditioned, and she was provided with her own television. Now housed with the general population, she has no such luxuries. 
One item of interest in her court filing is Zamora's report that her only friend in prison is Yolanda Saldivar, another high-profile inmate. Saldivar, as you may recall, murdered Tejano singing star Selena Quintanilla in 1995. Saldivar is also commonly known as the most hated woman in Texas. A tree was planted in Adrian Jones's honor at Mansfield High School. In front of it is a plaque inscribed with the motto, Strength, Unity, Courage, words chanted by students after their classmate and friend was so brutally taken from them. They used it as their mantra to remember AJ in a positive light and take strength in each other to get through the darkest days. Diane Zamora and David Graham are now both 40 years old. They will not be eligible to apply for parole until 2032, when they are close to 60. Adrian Jones would have just been 38 years old at the time of this writing. That'll do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'd like to thank Casey Graham once again for the suggestion of this case. Oh, and by the way, he's no relation to David Graham, if you're wondering. And if you'd like to thank Casey for suggesting this fascinating case, you can go to Make-A-Wish North Texas at www.ntx.wish.org and consider making a donation or donate to any Make-A-Wish organization. Make-A-Wish creates life-changing wish experiences for children with critical illnesses around the world. When you give to Make-A-Wish, you'll be helping to make a child's wish come true. Thanks. While I was researching this case, I was able to find the entire text of both Diane Zamora and David Graham's confessions. There was a lot to unpack in those written confessions, and I think it gives great insight into at least Diane Zamora's personality and motivations for murder. To dive into that a little further, I'll be putting up a bonus episode on Patreon, where I will go through the entire confession. I'll be commenting on the psychology of Diane Zamora, as I interpret it. That will be up in the next week. If you'd like to become a Patreon member to have access to all the bonus episodes, as well as occasional early release, ad-free episodes, plus merch like stickers, buttons, and tote bags sent to you, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. You can pledge as little as $2 per month to get members-only perks. Thanks so much for your support. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia, and our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.